0: Bless His Holy Name. There's none like Him anywhere, none before Him, none beside Him. He's God all by Himself. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the Book of John, the sixth chapter, verses fifty-nine through seventy-one. That's the Book of John, the sixth chapter. Verses 59 through 71. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, Our God is an awesome God. Bless his holy name. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John chapter 6, verses 59 through 71. And the word of God says this, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but... There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, Many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. These actions that we see in this passage this morning are depicting an exchange between Jesus and these Jews, these Galilean Jews. And it happens at a Passover feast that's one year before the Passover that Jesus will die, be buried, and resurrect from. Really, this is the last public act to his Galilean ministry that's recorded in the Gospel of John. And when you listen to it, you see that there's a hint of discouragement in the hearts of those disciples who are around Jesus. What is discouragement, Pastor? Discouragement is dissatisfaction with your past, distaste for your present, and distrust of your future. Discouragement is ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday, indifference to the opportunities of today, and insecurity regarding the strength of tomorrow. Discouragement is the being unaware of the presence of beauty, unconcerned for the needs of our fellow men, and unbelief in the promises of a holy God. It is impatience with time, immaturity with thought, impoliteness to God. That is what discouragement is. And we see those things happening through these disciples who are now around Jesus when he speaks to them these hard sayings. Think about it for a moment. These people have witnessed the miraculous ministry of Christ. He fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. They saw him walk on the water. He proved that Peter could walk on the water as well as long as Peter would keep his eyes on Jesus. He's already shared with them the monumental teaching about what the real source of this miracle was, that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven heaven. He is the food that meets their ultimate hunger, their ultimate thirst. If they eat of him, they can live forever. But in our passage this morning, because of their disobedience when it comes to belief, they're disillusioned, they're disappointed, they're discouraged. And they find it very, very hard to listen to these claims. They keep saying, these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? You see, all through John's gospel, Jesus has warned them time and time again about their inability to bear the truth. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. John 8:42 and 43. Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word." So in this morning's passage, we're dealing with a similar event. We're dealing with people who cannot bear the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus is telling them that it's simply because of their unbelief that has led them to a lack of understanding. Here Jesus challenges they're grumbling. He challenges their lack of understanding that he's a bread of life. He's addressing their taking offense and asking them would they be more offended if they saw the very son of man ascend back to heaven from whence he came. He reminds them that this lack of belief is clearly seen in what he's already told them. That's why he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then he asked them toward the end of our passage today, do you want to leave also? He he asked this question knowing all the time that those who remain 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 because their belief and their understanding comes through these hard sayings because they now know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Let us pray. Dear heavenly and loving Father, we need you every day. Oh, how we need you. Every hour. Oh, how we need you. Teach us today To be disciples who can overcome disappointment. Disciples who can overcome despair. Disciples who recognize how to replace all of that with reverence for you. Disciples who come to the realization that at times your words might be stern, but they're always soothing to our soul. Remind us, O Lord, of the words that are in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Let us realize, O oh Lord, that you are a sovereign God who sits high and looks no. That understands all about each and every creature because you created them. You are just and a justifier, and all of your judgments can be trusted. Bless us today, O oh Lord. Give us greater knowledge of you, greater knowledge of your ways. It is in the precious name of your Son, and our Savior, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. We're going to end chapter 6 this morning with this last sermon on the fact of the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus said these things, as it says in John six fifty nine, in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. John has told us earlier that this conversation took place at Capernaum. Now he's more specific and he tells us that these hard sayings that Jesus is relating from verses 27 all the way to verse 58, they happen in the synagogue. And they seem more appropriate because they had earlier that day had a reading from the Old Testament and it was Exodus 16. I'm just going to read you a part. Exodus 16, 4 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, When they prepared what they uh, were bringing in, it will be twice as much as their daily gathering. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of God because he has heard your grumblings against the Lord. For what Are we that you should grumble against us? And Moses says, When the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but is against the Lord. Then later in this same passage, Verses 11 through 12, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel said to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You see, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they always know what's in our minds and what's about to come out of our mouths. They know what's in our hearts and they know what is in our heads. And they understand that sometimes we understand things with our head, but we refuse to accept those things with our hearts. We see here that the disciples react, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? John six sixty says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? When you look at verse 52 here, you see earlier that the Jews have disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And we recognize it wasn't just the Jews disputing, but many of his disciples. They were finding the teachings of Jesus hard to take, hard to accept. You see, when We don't accept full-throatedly the teachings of Jesus. That's a dividing line that shows whether we are true disciples or not. It's our response to what Jesus is saying. By their response, they're saying that they are not true disciples. See, you've got to distinguish here the word disciples from the word the twelve. Jesus had many more uh, disciples than he had the 12 original apostles. And we can see here that faith is not always the same. Look at John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, he personal pronoun refers to Jesus. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that He was doing, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. You see, their disciples, and then their' disciples. And at a most elementary level here, a disciple is someone who is at the point of following Jesus whether they understand it yet or not. A disciple is someone that is willing to pursue Jesus from place to place to regard Jesus as the authority to see Jesus as the very Son of God. Not all disciples are necessarily even Christians. If they don't follow Jesus. You see, a disciple has come to the saving knowledge of trusting in Jesus. A disciple is someone that has sworn allegiance to Jesus. A disciple is someone that recognizes that he has been a gift given from the Father to the Son and that he has been born again. Later on in verse, chapter 8, you'll see where Jesus makes this crystal clear that those who continue in his word, those are true disciples. It's around like chapter 8, verse 31. But the disciples that are being described here, they're not in his word. They're telling you up front, they find this teaching hard and they wonder who in the heck could accept it? It's hard to even listen to. The adjective that John is using here hard is skeros. It means hard to understand. It means harsh. It means offensive. It means difficult. It means downright rough. And these disciples will not long remain disciples of Jesus because they find his words intolerable and they find his words impossible to comply with you know when you read your bible and you see in there commands that you are at the moment not living up to being disciple being a disciple Means that regardless of what I'm doing when I hear truth I'm willing to drop whatever I'm doing and abide by truth whether I understand it or not because I understand that Jesus is the truth. And even though I'm failing in my behavior God forbid that I fail in my faith. So here, this kind of reaction didn't catch Jesus by surprise. I think that shows clearly here in John six sixty one. 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus offers these brief remarks here. He hears by his supernatural knowledge of all things. He hears the grumbling in their spirit. You see, you want to be, be completely clear of grumbling audibly and grumbling inside of your very spirit. It, it still counts if you don't open your mouth, but you still close down your heart. Jesus is doing here, with his, through his supernatural knowledge and power, the same things that he did in John 1, 46 through 49 when he's dealing with Nathanael. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, Pastor, what is it that offended these disciples, offended their sensibilities? Well, if you look at the text, judging from the previous conversations, I think there are four features in the remarks and the things that Jesus was teaching that they took offense to. Number one, I think we can go back earlier in chapter 6 and we see that they were more interested in politics than in purity. They were more interested in food than in faith. They were more interested in the miracles that Jesus were, was performing they didn't care about the spiritual realities that that miracle really pointed to i think secondly just like we are most of the time they were unprepared to relinquish what they thought their own sovereign authority over themselves and religious matters that's the first step toward genuine faith being able to let go and let god They did not understand that it is God that does the choosing. It is God that does the calling. It is God who does a completed work of drawing people to himself to give as gifts to his son. Thirdly, they're offended at the claims that Jesus is advancing, that I am greater than Moses. I have been uniquely sent by God down from heaven. And then fourthly, they were angry about this whole metaphor of the bread itself. It assaulted all of their sensibilities, especially when he got to the point of saying, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. This really challenged their unbelief. But something you're going to see about the absolute boldness of Jesus in this passage Instead of apologizing for their being offended, Jesus takes it one step further. Look what he does in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Think about what he's reflecting on here. I just told you I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And if that offends you, how much more will you be offended if I were to go back to where I came? Now, when you look at the Greek text here, it preserves the condition but does not add a conclusion. So it's possible that what he's saying here can be understood in two different ways. One, Jesus is saying, uh, my ascension will even make the offense greater Or secondly, my ascension will reduce and remove the offense altogether because you will see with your own eyes that I'm going back to heaven. So you see here, these disciples, when they see Jesus claiming authority, uh, claiming uh, even through his own language that can be offensive to him, that what are you going to do when you see me ascend back to heaven? What are you going to do? When you see me on the cross, think about this. If they can't deal with that, how are they going de- to deal with the cross? The cross is a supreme scandal to them. If eating his flesh and drinking his blood was offensive, how much more is the crucifixion of the Messiah that came to save even more offensive? That idea was have to be absolutely outrageous. It would have to border on obscenity, blasphemy. I want you to look in your Bibles for a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Paul is showing you there clearly that people bring their own agendas. They bring their own concerns about what is going to make them truly enter into belief. One group says... It will only happen if I see signs. The other group will say, you're going to have to make it logical to me for me to believe. But the Spirit of God says that out of both of those groups, those who I have called through the power of God will come to me regardless of their own agendas because they have set them down and they have trusted me. We see here that this is part of the divine disclosure that Jesus is speaking about himself. Think about it for a moment. The, the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest degradation and shame of Jesus Christ, and at the same moment is the greatest moment of his glorification. Here we see that the path of his return to glory back to the Father before the world began happens not long after this hour. After the servant of God, despised and rejected by man, the servant of God Pierce for our transgressions and crush for our iniquities, the servant of God whose very path and portal will be raised when he is lifted up and highly exalted on the cross to save and redeem all of those that the Father has gifted him. You know, I think this is why in the Greek, they left this condition open. And why is that, Pastor? Because it depends to how men and women respond to the supreme scandal that determines their destiny. Well, Pastor, do they surrender and respond to the effectual call? Absolutely. Do they yield to irresistible grace? Absolutely. Do they come to Christ because they've been drawn by the Father? Absolutely. Jesus, the Son of Man, tells us clearly in verses 36 through 39. Listen to this. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I'm going to raise it up on the last day. And then again in John 1, 50 through 51, speaking to Nathaniel again, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that he's going to become what is spoken of in the Old Testament as what? Jacob's ladder. That he's the way, <clears throat> the truth, and the life. Jesus is speaking of ascending, and when he speaks of his ascension, he's just talking about going back to heaven from where he came. He's affirming his pre-existence, and that places him in a different class of any other religious leader, because Jesus is the one that holds the keys to life. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If we take these words literally from the preceding verses, they should penetrate our heart way past this symbolic understanding. We recognize that when Jesus says, the flesh counts for nothing, he's not saying the flesh is insignificant because the word became flesh. But what he's saying is that when we focus all of our attention on the flesh— we really miss the significance of Jesus. We need to understand when there's superficial belief, like we see evidence in these disciples who are not true disciples, and then later on, real belief when we see those disciples who remain. All the time throughout the Bible, we are looking for that which gives life. Genesis 1 and 2 says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We recognize that the Spirit gives life. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 5. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesize over these bones. Speak to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. You see, it's that breath of life that comes only from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes a contrast between, or rather a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. He's saying that the spirit gives life. And to whom God gives the spirit without limit, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, when he speaks the words, they are spirit and they are truth. They are life-giving spirit. We recognize here. That there is a unique allusion to Jeremiah 15 and 16, really Jeremiah 15, 15 through 16. O oh Lord, you know, remember and visit me, and take vengeance on me, on my persecutors. For in your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words, were found, and I ate them, and your words became a joy and a delight of my heart. for I am called by your name, O God, God of hosts, not. Ho- you see here? When we take this word seriously, and then we consume this word, this word builds us up, this word gives us nourishment. This word feeds us until we want no more. It becomes the delight of our heart. It no longer becomes challenging to keep his word because we recognize the victory and the blessings that come with keeping his word. Ezekiel says it this way, Ezekiel 2, 8 through 10. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat, What I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll. And go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, fill your belly with the scroll that I give to you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. You see, when we consume God's word, it's no longer challenging to live by God's word. Because it so nourishes us and it teaches us that it is the bread of life. It is what sustains us. Jesus says here in John 5, through 47, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For it, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We, as disciples of Christ, have to become to the point, human beings that live by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. We have to recognize as he says in John 5 24, truly I I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but he passes from death to life. I hope you can see clearly here How Jesus is really connecting verses 63 to verses 61 and 62. He's talking about establishing that link between his ascension and his glorification and really the coming of the Spirit. Think about it for a moment. All the proof, all the persuasion, all of the points leading them To faith because they are so superficial because they are so shallow they have offended them but he keeps insisting that they surrender to the unrelenting understanding of a spiritual life and not just life with no abundance that just comes through living life without God Look how he speaks to them in verse 64 of chapter 6. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that was going to betray him. Again, there's no catching Jesus by surprise. He understands that there are some who are going to reject him. There are many that are not going to believe. There are many who are never going to put the proper value in having faith in him. Hebrews 4 and 2 says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of God. Every instance of hearing in the New Testament speaks of the fact that if you heard, then you performed properly. Just like you do with your kids. They do something that's off, uh, off the chain compared to what you ask them. The first thing you ask them, did you hear me? Because if you heard me, then you should have followed through, right? The same thing here. And when John speaks of the fact that Jesus knew from the beginning, he's not speaking of the beginning of his ministry. He's speaking of the beginning of time before the very foundations of the earth. He's talking about the real beginning. But it's hard. This is a hard saying for those who don't understand that they, unless they are drawn by the Father, they will never come to Jesus. Look at verse 65. And he says to them, this is why I told you that no one comes to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Once again, Jesus knew in advance those that would reject him, and knowing this, he gives his divine initiative way back here in verses 43 through 44. And again, it comes when they were grumbling, right? Look what it says. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day again this text states unequivocally here no one the universal negative collective propositional statement about everyone considering everyone who's ever lived no one can come to me the greek word here is dunamai which means ability So no one has what? The ability to come to me. We talked about this before. You remember that teacher when you shot up your hand and said, can I go to the restroom? And she said, I know you can, but what you meant to say is may I go to the restroom? Can denotes ability. May denotes permission. Jesus is saying that no one, no human being has the ability in and of themselves to come to me. He gives us a clear path. He gives us the only prescription. He gives us the only process that we can ever follow if we're going to ever come to him. It, unless the Father who sent me draws you. And if you don't believe the Father sent Christ, then the Father is probably not drawing you. He makes it clear here. He tells them in John 13, 16 through 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, bless are you if you do them I am not speaking of all of you I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it takes place you may believe that I am he truly truly I said to you whoever receives the one I sin, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one I sent. Men and women, all of us were commanded to believe, and we are held accountable for our unbelief. Genuine coming to faith is never the matter of autonomous human decision. You did not make up your mind if it was up to me to make up my mind, I would still be dying in my sins. He makes it even clearer in the remaining verses of our passage when he speaks to the true disciples, the twelve. It's a hard saying, but where can we go? For Jesus has the words of life. John six sixty six. after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They abandoned him. The one that had fed them, the one that had showed them great signs, the one that had taught them and ministered to them because the road got too tough the road of following his narrow path to righteousness, they turned away from him and no longer walked with him. It was like they were saying, Jesus, your teaching is intolerable. It's too hard to follow. I can't even listen to you anymore. But you notice something? Jesus did not reshape his comments to pander to their taste. What they wanted, he would not give. What they offered, he did not receive. And then, you know, great coaches, especially in football, great coaches are not just known about by the skill of the plays that they design, Right? But they're known by the fact that they can change the outcome of the game by going into the locker room at halftime and giving this awe-inspiring speech that makes those players forget the first and second quarters of the game and concentrate on the, fourth, the third and fourth quarters. I want to show you the greatest halftime speech In the Bible. So Jesus said to the 12. Do you want to go away as well? Do you hear any pandering? Do you hear any motivational emphasis? He just says it is what it is. Do you want to go away as well? This is not a rhetorical question. It demands an answer. The answer no, or it demands that you would at least think about what you're about to say. And he can say this with all confidence because he knows everyone that comes to him has been drawn by the Father and it is a gift from God and they will not be taken away because everything that has been placed in his hand, no one can snatch it out of his hand. So he doesn't have to play with them. He just says, do you want to go away as well? I think it's incredibly interesting here as well. We start off the beginning of chapter 6. He feeds 5,000. We know that they don't count men. They only count men. They don't count women and children. So we know it's upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. And now at the ending verses of 6, he's back to the 12 he started with. What does that tell me? That tells me it's amazing what, the, what a crowd you can amass when everything is centered on what Jesus can do for you. And it's amazing to see how that crowd fends out when they're asked to do something for Jesus. Okay, pastor, what were they asked to do? They were asked to believe that Jesus was the ultimate supply. They were asked to believe that little becomes much in the master's hand. They were asked to believe that five loaves and two fish could be a banquet for 5,000 people. They were asked to believe that by having faith in him, they could walk on water too or really walk through the storms of life. They were asked to believe to not be afraid. They were asked to believe to not seek food that perishes, but food that endures. They were asked to believe to believe that he was the one that was sent down from heaven. They were asked to believe to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means to believe his word and operate within his commands. They were asked to believe that he would never leave them nor forsake them because he had the words of life. And even at this late moment, only one out of 12 speaks up. Look at 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. Now watch this. And we believed and have come to know. When you put your belief, with your experience see most people just want to operate off their experience but when you are able to put your belief and your experience together that's a dynamic duel we have believed and we have come to know that you are the holy one of god this is a strong confession stronger than the one he gave in Caesarea Philippi when you know, when he said he would follow him to death and then turned around and denied the Lord, he simply says, to whom can we go? You have the words. To leave you is to leave eternal life. You already told us that your words, that you spoke to us, are spirit and life. And we believe them. We are not in a state of misunderstanding or unbelief. We're in a state of faith and knowledge that you are the Holy One of God. Faith and knowledge is personal. And it constitutes eternal life. And when it's stated emphatically... It means that I have set down all of my agendas, all of my concerns, and I have placed my trust fully in Jesus Christ, who is the object of my faith. They did not entertain leaving at all. They all agreed with their spokesman that Jesus had the words of life. Then Jesus speaks to them prophetically. In verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus doesn't leave any room for them to congratulate themselves like you've made the right decision. No, you made the right decision because my father made the right decision about you. And I chose each and every one of you, yet one of you is a devil. The Diabolos. It means a slanderer, a false accuser. And he's speaking of Judas Iscariot that will betray him later. Who will betray him. It always amazes me And we will speak more about Judas later on in John, but still it always amazes me the incredible love and patience that Jesus shows towards someone that he knew from the beginning would betray him and never be converted. He let him serve in ministry at the highest level. He's a administrator. He's dealing with all the money. Knowing that he is the one that it has been prophesied as a son of pernition. That the only one he would lose is you. He's a family member that's going to betray Jesus Christ. You know, there is no treachery worse than the betrayal by a family member or really, really close friend. If you remember Julius Caesar, and when the conspirators from the Senate came to assassinate him on March 15th, you see that he's fighting back, and he could almost withstand all the Wounds that were inflicted upon him. But there was one person in the crowd, Brutus, that Caesar trusted with his whole heart. He had favored him as a son. And you see, as the story is told to us, that he was Caesar resisting and fighting back all of the assassins who were attacking him until he saw Brutus pull out his knife. And when he saw Brutus, he pulled up his cloak and said, you too, Brutus? He was so betrayed, so overwhelmed by that, that he gave in to that. He didn't resist anymore. Isn't it wonderful that we serve a Christ that we have betrayed, we have brutally used his name, we have turned our back on him, we have denied his word but yet he's never given up on us. With every betrayal he has shown us love and every betrayal he has given us the hard sayings that will bring us back Uh, to a true understanding of who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So if we've learned anything from chapter 6, it should be that Jesus Christ is worthy of our faith. He's worthy to be honored. He's worthy to be f- followed. That he is simply the bread that has come down from heaven, sent by God the Father. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We're overwhelmed in your goodness and your mercy, your patience and your long suffering toward us. Lord, build us up on every leaning side that we might walk in a way that honors you. Lord, uh, you've already changed our clothes, so let us put on our new garments of faith and righteousness and trust and adoration. And let us show an unbelieving world that you have true disciples that are willing to exchange their lives for the life you have given us. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, The Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.